Well, you ready to enjoy the word together? All right, we'll invite you to take your Bible then, or your iPad, or however it's working for you these days, and open to the Old Testament book of Proverbs and chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3 this morning, and if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And also in your bulletin is a little note page. I'll ask you to grab that if you wouldn't mind. That will prove helpful, I think, along the way. And let me just ask the Lord to bless our time. Well, Heavenly Father, you have been so faithful, and we've been singing about your faith and your faithfulness to us and your guidance in our lives and taking us through the ocean waves and when the waters are up to our up to our necks, we, we call out to you and you faithfully take us through and you show us the way. Lord, today we would ask you to show us the way through your word. Take us where you want us to go. May your spirit be our teacher. I'd be pleased to simply be your mouthpiece for that. Bless your people as we seek to bless you through our commitment to your word in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Well, as the story goes, a female flight attendant was spending a week's vacation in the Colorado Rockies. She was captivated by the mountain peaks and the deep blue skies and the sweet smell of the forest. But she was also charmed by a very eligible bachelor that she met while she was on vacation who owned a large cattle ranch and lived in an authentic log cabin. At the end of the week, Mr. Wonderful proposed to her. Just one week. And it all happened so quickly that uh, the woman decided that she would return home. She would return to her job trusting that she would somehow be guided to make the right decision, yes or no. Well, a few days later, she's back um, at work, and she's flying at 35,000 feet, and she's finding herself occupied with this question, do I or don't I marry this man? And she steps into the restroom, and she splashes a little bit of cool water on her face and, and looks in the mirror, and she says, what do I do? Well, at that moment, there was some unexpected turbulence, and the plane shuddered, and, and a sign in the restroom above the door said, please return to the cabin. <laughs> yes, she took that as a message from God. She did just that. She married the rancher and returned to his log cabin in the mountains. Now, church family... I'm not quite sure that that is the best way to make life decisions. But this story does reveal a common challenge faced by all of us. When we're confronted with choices and decisions, how do we know that we're making the right one? For the follower of Jesus, for the Christian, our desire is, is, is to have God at the center of those decisions and those choices. Can we have the assurance that we're going to be shown the right way to go? Can we have that as the children of God, as the, as the people of, of Jesus? Can we have that, that assurance? You believe that? I believe that as well. As we turn again in the direction of our study series this morning, standing on the promises of God, which we introduced a couple of weeks ago, we are going to hang out with one of God's truly wonderful promises to us. His promise to guide our steps through a fallen world, 
A fallen world that is marked by hazards and dangers and traps and detours, tempting options and confusing choices. We have a promise that God will guide us through the journey from here to him. And we believe that today. And we get to share that truth together. If you've been a Christian for even a a short period of time and you have been confronted with the need to make a difficult choice in your life or, 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 or a decision or or perhaps a, a, a determine a course of action that you should take that could have some long-range implications, and you've shared that with a Christian friend, then the chances are very good that your Christian friend then shared with you a verse or two, right? These are two verses that we know very well. We have memorized them. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Has anybody ever shared those verses with you? Oh, yeah. Have you ever shared those verses with another friend? Yes. Many of us have hidden these verses in our hearts, haven't we? We have them right here. Let's read these two verses aloud together as a family. Let's do it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Do you believe it? Yeah. God says, I want to be at the center of every choice that you consider, every decision that you make. I want you to know my will even more than you want to know my will. And I promise, I promise, I will show you the good way to go. That's the Tim paraphrase of those two verses. If we are truly serious about knowing God's best for our lives, he says that we can. He promises that we will. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will, not might, but he will make straight your paths. Now, on that little note page that you have, before we take a closer look at these two amazing verses, let's do a little bit of myth-busting together. What do you say? Uh, you know that TV program called Mythbusters, uh, where those two guys sit out to challenge many of the, the different beliefs or ideas that people commonly hold to or assume are true? Well, let's bust a few myths about, of our own about God's guidance in our lives. We'll just... Let's just bust some myths. What's the first myth? Myth number one, it's so hard to know God's will. Is that a myth? That is a myth. That is a myth. I I like the story of the woman driving her car alone, uh, intent on getting back home. She lives in Buffalo, New York. She gets caught in one of those those terrific lake effect blizzards that we hear about on the news in the wintertime. She's completely at a loss as to which way to go. The snow is getting deeper and deeper. And then she peers ahead and she sees the flashing lights of a snowplow. She decides, I'm going to follow this snowplow and keep as close to it as I possibly can. At times, the blowing snow was so bad she could hardly see the plow, but her faithful guide kept going on and she kept following. Well, after some time... the the plow stopped and its driver got out and made his way back to her car. And he says, lady, where are you going? And she says, well, I'm trying to get to my house. 
And he says, well, you're never going to get there following me. I'm plowing a parking lot. (laughs) Round and round and round. Now, it's a silly story. But it does beg the question, who or what are we following in this stormy world that we live in? God, we're happy to report, is not plowing parking lots. That's not what he's about. He wants us on the right road, and he longs to be the one leading the way and giving us good directions. While many of us struggle with trying to discern what God wants for us to do in a specific situation, so much of what he really desires for us, what his will is for us, he's already revealed that to us. Now, where has he done that? He's done that in his word, hasn't he? He has revealed his will to us in his word. Is it hard to know what God's will is? Not if we're in the book, right? Not if we're in the book. A young, uh, an, the Apostle Paul writes to a young pastor by the name of Timothy in the New Testament, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. You know these verses. How do they read? All Scripture is God-breathed. That means it comes from his heart onto the printed page. It's him, his word, inerrant and from him. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for four things. For teaching rebuking, correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Holy Spirit through Paul's pen says this book will teach us what's right. It will rebuke what's wrong. It'll correct the wrong if we've slid into that place and it will equip us to do the right things over and over and over again. In other words, the Bible has already revealed God's will in most every situation that you and I will ever encounter. And so knowing God's will is not nearly as hard as we make it out to be sometimes. That's a myth that we can't know God's will because it's too hard. Myth number two says, I better be 100% sure before I commit, before I take a step, before I make a decision. Is that a myth? That is a myth. In our search for certainty about God's will, we can end up being paralyzed because we aren't able to eliminate all of the question marks or, or answer all of the unknowns, and we, we end up not making decisions at all because we think we've got to know it all. We need to be able to see the end before we can commit to a beginning. But that's a myth. Trusting God means, church family, that we put our faith in him even when we still have nagging doubts and fears. You know, if God's people, for example, on the pages of Scripture waited until every question that they had had been answered, those people wouldn't be on the pages of Scripture, right? Because they wouldn't have made any decisions. They wouldn't have committed to no action. When we do give our lives to the Lord and we trust him in the decisions that we need to make, we don't have to have all the answers. We just need to have him. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, this is a wonderful truth. It's not a permission slip that, 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 that means we can do careless and stupid. We plan, but it does say that we trust God with our plans and we go forward. God's big enough to, 
to order our steps once we make the commitment to a particular course. I think also of Psalm 119, 105, which you know, I know many of you would have this verse hidden in your heart. Your word is a what? It's a lamp to my feet. It is a light for my path. Your word. The Hebrew word for lamp here is not floodlight. Okay? That's not the word. It's not the picture of a giant flaming torch that illuminates this this huge room where you're doing your life. It's the word for a little oil lamp that has a flame no bigger or brighter than a small candle. It's the picture of a person who is out in the dark walking on a dangerous trail. And the only light comes from a little oil lamp that glows just enough to allow the person to take one step, right? Just enough light to illuminate one step. And once that step is taken, what does the little lamp do? It illuminates the next step, and then the next, and then the next. There's no doubt that that there are many reasons why God would not reveal our entire future to us and give us that floodlight But one of the reasons for sure that he gives us the little lamp and not the floodlight is because he wants us to trust him moment by moment and step by step. It's a myth that we have to have 100% certainty about a course of action before we act. We trust our God. He's big enough, right? Is he? Yeah, he is. A third myth. God wants me to be happy. Is that a myth? <laughs> yeah. As Americans, we're brought up, though, with the creed, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's in, it's in our, our, our national documents, right? We're supposed to be happy. Sometimes we transfer that thought heavenward. God wants me to be happy. This is a myth. God is committed to our holiness, not our happiness. Would you embrace that truth? Yeah. In order for that to happen, for holiness to happen, sometimes he's going to allow us to go through the refining fires of a trial, a test, some tough times, some unpleasant stuff, stuff that doesn't make us happy. He will take us into those places because he's much more committed to our holiness than to our happiness. Check these, two, check these three verses out. This is from James chapter 1. You know these verses, but, but let me give them to you as Eugene Peterson renders them in his paraphrase called The Message. I just love the way he puts this. Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure... Your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. Boy, I like that. That says it in a way that I can understand it. Our loving Heavenly Father is infinitely more interested in the kind of person that you and I are becoming than whether or not we're happy. And we need, to, we need to settle into that truth. In fact, you know where God is actually wanting to go with you and with me today? Romans chapter 8, verse 29. 
For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the what? To the likeness of his son. God's driving passion in your life and in my life, if I can put it that way, his driving passion is that you and I would be increasingly over time more and more accurate reflections of Jesus. That's what he's about. If you're happy along the way, great. But that's not the, that's not the main thing. Everything's expendable for the ultimate goal of making you and me look like Jesus. That's cool. Three myths that God would like to see busted in the life of every one of his kids. And rather than buy into those lies, those myths, we would say, he would say to us, I have something better for you. I have a promise for you. Trust in me with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge me and I will, I will make straight your paths. In one sentence, two verses, God tells us not only what we need to do at those, those forks in the road moments in our lives, but also what we can expect for him, from him in these verses. Let, let's take a closer look at 5 and 6, and let's do that by breaking it out into its four main phrases, because each one holds a really important truth for us about God's guiding promise in our lives and how that actually works. What do we do with the decision-making moments of our lives, our seeking God's will and direction moments, his guidance? What do we do? Well, if God himself were answering that question, the first thing he would say to us about two-thirds of the way down your note page in verse 5 is, first thing I'd want you to do, lay all of you onto all of me. Lay all of you onto all of me. Now, that sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? I, I acknowledge that. But it's going to make sense in just a moment. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, the first phrase says. Lay all of you on all of me. It's the perfect way to capture this part of the promise, of what the, the psalmist was thinking when he wrote these words by the inspiration of God's Spirit. The reason we know that is because of the word trust. In Hebrew, that word literally means to lay on with your whole body. That's what the word trust means in Hebrew. Lay on with your whole body, rest your full weight upon something. Now, the Hebrew word is actually borrowed from the idea of someone who stretches themselves out on a bed. If you can picture that in your mind, they stretch themselves out on the bed with the settled assurance that they will not be sent crashing to the floor. When they do that, they are putting their full weight upon the integrity of the bed. They have put their full confidence on the bed, and so they trust the bed, they lay on the bed, and and with their whole being, and in time, they actually fall asleep. They are so at peace and rest. That's this word. That's the picture you want to have in your mind. So to trust in the Lord means to lay all of us on all of him. You see that? Yeah, that's a beautiful picture. Rest our full weight, everything we are, all that we possess, every relationship, every dream, every desire, everything we've got, we lay it upon him. And when we know this about the word trust, then lay on him 
all of you, lay all of you on him. Well, that doesn't sound quite so weird after all. The title Lord in this first phrase, in all capital letters in your Bible, if you notice that, this is important. Because when your Bible translates the word Lord in all caps, it's telling you that this is the name of God that we refer to as Yahweh. This is his personal name. This is the name that he gave to Moses. First time we ever find it in Scripture, in in Exodus chapter 3, when God comes to Moses in a burning bush, and he says, Moses, I promise that I'm going to take my people out of slavery in Egypt and bring them to their own land and to freedom. This is where he gives that name, Yahweh. And so it's really the name of our promise-keeping God, the one and only unchanging Yahweh. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Proverbs 29:25 says this, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever, what's the next word? Trusts lays all of them on all of him, will be what? Kept safe. That's a promise, isn't it? That's another promise from him. If we want God's guidance, church family, then then his call to us is a no-holding-back kind of a trust. He's saying, lay on me. Lay on me. Don't lean on me. Don't rest up against me. Lay on me. Our full weight. Look again at that opening phrase. Trust in the Lord with, what's the next word? All your heart. What does all mean? All means all. Yeah, there you go. Very technical, isn't it? All means all. If that little word is not circled in your Bible, maybe it would be a good time to do that. It's an interesting word. It's a word that's used in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 22, to refer to an offering that is presented to God to be burned up until there's nothing left. So if you can get that picture in your mind, God doesn't want half-burned offerings given to him, and he doesn't want half-hearted trust given to him either. He wants us to be like offerings on the altar that are consumed till there is nothing left. All of us laid on all of him. Now, This kind of trust, this level or or depth of trust that's called for in 3.5 shares something in common with bungee jumping. I'm, I'm not kidding you. I'm serious about that. What do I mean? Well, if how many have any of you ever bungee jumped in here? Any bungee jumpers? Whoa, we've got a few brave souls who have have actually done that. Anyone who actually has bungee jumped knows that it all comes down to the bungee cord and your trust in that cord. Do I trust it? Will I put my full weight upon that cord or not? That's what it's going to come down to. Because, you know, I can can watch bungee jumping on TV and I can have friends who bungee jump, and I can own stock in a bungee-making company, and I can subscribe to Bungee Jumping Magazine, and I can join a bungee jumpers club, and I can even stand on a bridge strapped in and ready to jump, but I haven't trusted in that bungee cord until I have done what? 
until I have jumped. That's right. Until I have, I have fallen forward past the point of no return. Yeah. <laughs> no way. Have you ever noticed that there is no such thing as a partial bungee jump? There's no such thing as that. It's an all or nothing. It just calls for total commitment, total trust. Now, the bungee principle, I would suggest to you, is in effect what God is calling for from, from you and me as we stand on the edge of a decision, uh, a choice we need to make, an action we need to take, and as we figure, figuratively stand on that platform, our toes curled over the edge, God waits. He waits. Will he trust me? Will she lay her whole weight on me? And all of this, according to verse 5, is happening where? In the heart. This is all going on inside of the heart. The heart in the Old Testament was viewed as the control center for your whole life, your whole person. It included your mind, your will, your emotions. God says... I want you to trust me with the whole self that you are, the whole person you are, no holding back. We're to go to him with all of our feelings, with all of our thoughts, with all of our questions, our concerns, our desires, our wishes, our fears, big or small, it doesn't matter because to God, none of it's big. And knowing what God wants for us is not a matter of learning a tricky technique or following a fancy formula. It's all about laying all of us on all of him. Do I trust you? But it doesn't stop there. Because a second truth comes in behind the first in the second part of verse 5. And do not, what? Lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. With this second phrase now, God is saying, don't try to figure everything out on your own. Again, that's really a paraphrase of the second, of the, the second phrase. Don't try to figure everything out on your own. Lay all of you on all of me and don't try to figure it all out. Because you can't. And I don't want you to. The word for lean here, it means to... Rest upon something with partial support. It's an interesting word as well. In the Hebrew, this word is borrowed from the figure of someone walking with a cane. That's where this word comes from. A cane is not intended to carry a person's full weight, is it? It was never made for that. In fact, if you tried to do that, things would not go very well. Because a cane is not made to carry your full weight. It's made to lean on and hold you Partially. In the first part of verse 5, we get the positive. Trust fully with all of your weight upon an infinite, all-knowing, limitlessly capable, promise-keeping Yahweh. Lay on Him because He can support you. And then comes the negative. Don't lean. Doesn't use the word trust. Uses the word lean. Don't even lean against your own understanding. Why? Because it can't hold you up through the decision-making process in a way that's good for you and honoring to God. Don't lean on your own understanding. Now, if we're honest, this is, this is I'm just going to kind of reveal myself here a little bit. We think we can figure it out most of the time, right? 
Now, we may not verbalize that here in this moment, but it's how we do it. Right, church? Much of the time, we figure it out. And then when we come up against it and it really isn't going well, then what? We look to the Lord. And, and this, this part of verse 5 is saying, do not lean on your own understanding. It doesn't mean we shouldn't use common sense. It doesn't mean that, that we don't draw upon prior life experience or the wisdom that God gives to us. But it does mean that we don't lean on us mostly and push God off to the fringe. We push ourselves off to the fringe and we lean on God totally. Yeah? Yeah. Proverbs 14, 12. What does it say? There is a way that seems seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Our understanding is so unreliable. In fact, it is not just unreliable, it's dangerous, isn't it? It can be dangerous. It's dangerous because our own understanding has this nasty habit of rationalizing. And we rationalize a situation or a decision until we work it out in such a way that, man, we can just do whatever we really want. We rationalize. I had a professor in seminary who said, gentlemen, never underestimate your ability to rationalize. And he is so right because we do that. And then the other thing we do is, is, is we, we, we simply don't have the big picture. We can't have the big picture with our own understanding. God, on the other hand, doesn't rationalize, and he has the big picture, doesn't he? Proverbs 28, 26. He who trusts in himself is a fool. A fool leans on his own little cane and thinks that it will carry his whole weight. But... He who walks in wisdom, that is in God's wisdom, is kept, what? Safe. Lay all of you on all of me, and don't try to figure everything out on your own. Then if you flip your note page over, church family, God's guiding promise says, thirdly, include me in the big stuff and the little stuff too. Press hard into me. That's the idea behind the first part of verse 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him. In all your ways, press hard into him. Well, what does that mean? Well, before we get to that, notice that this part of verse 6 is not a suggestion, is it? It's a what? It's a command. That's important. Don't let that get past you. This is not a suggestion from God to you, to me. This is a command. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Once again, the idea of all comes up. In everything you do, in every detail of your life, include your God. Acknowledge your God in every area, in all moments. In fact, the very same word acknowledge is used in the Old Testament when describing a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. There, there, there is this intimate communion, this intensely close trusting connection that's bound up in this word acknowledge. In everything that you do, make sure that you really are connecting with your God so that you will really do what he, what he wants, what he thinks, what, what he feels is important in your life. Acknowledge him, 
just like you would in a loving relationship in a marriage, you would press into your mate and understand them. So there on your note page, I've isolated just four places where we we might want to give a little bit of thought time as to how we are presently acknowledging him, pressing hard into him. Do a quick self-evaluation as we kind of run down through these, these four thoughts. Real lordship. Is Jesus Christ occupying the first place in your life right now? Not is that, is that something you wish would be true. Is it true? That's a fair question. In Luke chapter 6, huge crowds were following Jesus, and many were professing their, their loyalty to him, their love for him, their undying commitment to him. At one point, he turns to the crowd, and he asks them this very pointed question. Luke six forty six, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Is that a fair question? <laughs> you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say. And then he tells this very interesting little parable right on the heels of the question. He's, verse 47, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. You know this story, right? You know, you've, you've heard this story many times. Jesus is saying that the quality of what we're building with our lives is directly connected to his lordship. Is he the lord of my life? A house on sand or a house on solid ground? The general contractor who is God wants to provide guidance. But he can only really do that if we have yielded to his lordship. And then there's, there's consistent time in the word. We've kind of bumped up against this already. But, but what principles, what commands or prohibitions from the Bible apply to the decision that I'm needing to make? Does God speak to that in his word? Has he given me a promise, a direction? Most situations that we've already noted that we face in our lives are already dealt with here if we'll just take the time. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. You might know this verse. For the word of God is living and it is active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the divisions of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It knows what's going on. So go to the book. You recall the scene in Luke chapter 10 where Mary and Martha have Jesus as their guest in their home. Do you remember this moment? And, and Mary chooses to spend time at Jesus' feet. Martha, her sister, is running around like a chicken with her head cut off trying to get everything ready for all the, all the guests. And she gets really ticked off at Mary for not helping her. And so she goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you tell my sister to get it in gear and help me. And Jesus says to her, you remember that? Mary has chosen the best part. She's sitting at my feet and she's listening to me. 
I will not take that away from her. It's the best part. When we do that, brother, sister, when we do that, we start to know God's heart. And when we know his heart, then we begin to know his will in the midst of the decisions that come our way. There's a direct relationship. Pressing hard into him. They, they go together. If we want God's guidance, we need to be in the book. Am I in the book? In fact, a great question. How much time a week do you spend in the book? Not a book, the book. You don't answer that out loud, but answer that question for yourself. Prayer. Have I prayed? Have I, have I talked with my Lord about the decision or situation I'm facing, that I'm, the, the, one, the one that I'm looking for guidance for from Him? Have I talked to Him about it? Am I seeking my Heavenly Father daily in, 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 in dialogue? You know, I have learned most of the time the hard way that the bad decisions that I make are the direct result of not taking the time to talk with God about them first. Is that true for you? Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is so helpful and so so to the point. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, maybe your version uses petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Talk to God about those things. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. His peace is often clothed in the garments of his guidance. And his guidance is often invited into our lives by prayer. Do you see the relationship? Is that happening in my life? And then the last idea there for pressing hard into our Father involves seeking godly counsel. When we're faced with a decision that we need to make, Scripture says, find friends who know the Scriptures and ask them for advice. Do you do that? Do I do that? Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man, what? Listens to advice. Proverbs 19, 20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. What's out in front of you? How do you gain wisdom in that? Well, at least in part, you tap into your godly friends and you get their advice. It's really interesting that in verse 5, we are to avoid leaning on ourselves. But we're encouraged through these other verses to lean on each other. Isn't that good? That's good. It's part of how God guides us. Our Heavenly Father says, lay all of you on all of me. Don't try to figure everything out on your own. Include me in the big stuff and the little stuff too. Acknowledge me. Press hard into me. And then lastly, I promise that I will set and keep you on the right course. I promise. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. The word make is an action word. In fact, it's a Hebrew word that packs intensity. It's, it's a word that we're supposed to glean from the, the idea of God rolling up his sleeves because he's going to get dirty. 
He's going to go to work. That's the word make. God doesn't promise us necessarily wealth or health or popularity or or a, a comfortable life, but he promises us something much more valuable than that. He says, I will make your path straight. Straight. And in the end, we want that more than those other things, for sure. Another name for making our path straight, guidance. I will guide you. In ancient Israel, people would travel to various destinations, generally on foot or on horseback. And and Israel is a really hilly, rocky country. If you've ever been there, you know that is true. And so, so roads and paths are never straight. They are crooked. And they go around this and that obstacle. And it takes a long time to go a short distance. Living in Idlewild, we know something about this, right? We know something about windy roads and taking a long time to go a short distance. In fact, from, from Idlewild to Hemet, how far is that? 45? That's a, I'm not sure it's that far. About 23, 24 miles. If you're a commuter that has to work in Hemet, you know exactly how far it is. 23, 24 miles. I was just interesting, interested enough to figure out how far, if it was a straight line, would it be from Idlewild to, to Val Vista? You know how far it would be? Six miles. Six miles. So we have to go 23, 24 miles on a windy mountain road, but boy, if that road was straight, would that be nice? Straight, six miles, we'd be there just like that. That would be so nice. Here in verse 6, the Holy Spirit tells us through Solomon's pen that life is like a journey that goes into the mountains one day down to the desert the next day. Sometimes the road is washed out. Other times there are perilous potholes and and steep drop-offs. Life, being unpredictable as it is and demanding many difficult decisions, is a crooked proposition. It's just crooked all the time. At other times, the road is paved and it's smooth, but then all of a sudden, there's a fork in the road, right? <laughs> Not that kind of fork. No, this kind of fork, right? We're, we're going along and life is straight and then there's a fork in the road. We need guidance. When we decide to trust the Lord and not ourselves, we lay our full weight upon Him without reservation. And we press hard into him, hour by hour, minute by minute. The road may not change, but the beautiful thing is that we change. We change. We humbly follow, and he lovingly leads us. Do you believe that? Yeah, I believe that. Let me close with this. It's one of my favorite illustrations of the Christian life, the journey from knowing Jesus to, to living in him. So if you, I know you've heard it, so just bear with me because it, it just fits so well here. This is from Tim Hansel. He's gone to be with the Lord, but he writes this about his own Christian journey. He says, At first I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. That's how it was at first. He was out there some sort of, president but later on when i met jesus 
It seemed as though life were rather like a bike ride. But it was a tandem bike, and I noticed that Jesus was in the back helping me to pedal. I don't know just when it was that he suggested that we change places. But life has not been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way. It was a rather boring, predictable ride. It was the shortest distance between two points. But when he took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts. Up mountains, through rocky places, at breakneck speed. It was all I could do to hang on. Even though it looked like madness, he said, Pedal! I worried and I was anxious and I asked, Where are you taking me? He laughed and he didn't answer. And I started to learn to trust. I forgot my boring life and entered into the adventure. And when I'd say, I'm scared, he'd lean back and laugh and touch my hand. He took me to people with gifts that I needed, gifts that helped me and healed me, gifts of acceptance and joy. They gave me gifts to take on my journey, my Lord and me. And we were off again, and he'd say, give the gifts away. They're extra baggage, too much weight. And so I did to the people that we met, and I found that in giving I received, and still the burden was light. I did not trust him at first to be in control of my life. I thought he would wreck it, but he knows bike secrets, knows how to make it bend to take the sharp corners, knows how to jump to clear the high rocks, knows how to soar to shorten scary places. And I'm learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest places. And I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my delightful, constant companion, Jesus. And when I'm sure that I just can't do any more, he smiles and says, you pedal, I'll steer. That's the Christian life, isn't it? You pedal, I will steer, God says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. That's his promise. Let's pray together, church. Thank you for your word, Heavenly Father. Thank you for your promise, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for bringing your, your truth to life uh, for us this morning. May we be as uh, those in, in James, not hearers of the word, but doers of it. We don't want to just be entertained this morning. Heavenly Father, we want your spirit to take your truth, apply it to our lives so that we can live well for you. For those in our circle today, in our midst in this room this morning, who are facing some really tough decisions and choices, may these, these two verses prove especially um, helpful today. We're all going to need them because we all need you. We love you, Lord. We really do love you, but only because you loved us first in Jesus. And in him we say, amen.